0: Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Emily Barton Altman.
1: And I'm Toby Altman. Make No Bones is a podcast about poetry and the creative life. Each episode, we ask a poet to read a poem and talk about it. They tell us how they wrote it and explain how it reflects the broader priorities of their work. This week's episode
0: features Jen Bervin. Hello, I'm Jen Bervin.
1: Jen Bervin is an artist and poet whose research-driven, interdisciplinary works weave together art, writing, science, and life in a complex yet elegant way. Bervin has published 10 books, including, recently, Silk Poems, a long-form poem presented both as a book published by Nightboat in 2017 and as an implantable biosensor made from liquefied silk, which was developed in collaboration with Tufts University's Silk Lab. Silk Poems is a 2018 finalist for the 30th annual Lambda Literary Award. We talked with Jen about the constellation of objects that constitute silk poems, the intensive research she did for the project, and the origins of her multidisciplinary creative practice. So
0: this is a, a um, project in many parts. Uh, the first part of this work, I would say, um, begins at Tufts University with their research on liquefied silk. Uh, it's really a, a piece inspired by research, and uh, the form, the finished forms of, of that process, which took a number of years, uh, takes shape in nano-printed, nano-imprinted, liquefied silk film that's viewed through a microscope in an exhibition. It also has taken shape in a short documentary that my partner, Charlotte Lagarde, made. She's a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker. Typically, those two are shown together. Um, there's now a book out from Night Boat Books. It was released in October 2017, and I think it's almost ready to go into second printing. It's pretty fast. i And delighted. Uh, and I should say there's also a large-scale... Print of the poem strand on silk cloth that I sometimes show uh, in contexts where it's hard to bring a microscope in. So I think that, that those are all the moving parts that I know of to this project. But it's it's not atypical of my work to have multiple iterations that take different forms. I. I started as a visual artist, and um, no, that's not true. Maybe I'll say I started as interdisciplinary. (laughs) Um, But really, my first um, training was in the humanities at Macalester, and then in studio art at the School of the Art Institute. And then later, I went back for my master's in creative writing and poetry and uh, I I made a very distinct turn towards writing as I finished my BFA in Chicago. Uh, I felt like I'd exhausted my modes of working uh, at that point and I was making things I didn't want to live with. So it wasn't, maybe in retrospect, it wasn't so much about the way I was doing things, it was about who I was doing them for and why. And so I really needed to figure, I needed to reconcile my own um, relationship to creating things for other people. And I at that point, I tried to make a turn towards only putting things into the world that I actually wanted other people to live with. And uh, that really helped me figure out a lot of other pieces. And uh, poetry was a, the lion's share of that. They fused almost immediately, but it was uh, it was a real moment of kind of crisis or need or... Um, I guess recognition of the failure of one way of working. But I feel like the questions I return to are always very human. You know, I think a lot of people group my work in with um, experimental conceptual work and while that's true it's not the heart of the work um, and I think that's what's always made it a little bit different from those works. I'm always happy to be part of different conversations that I don't necessarily fit in <laughs> I like outliers so I'm happy to be one but um, I think you'd miss a lot if you just looked at my work that way as, as you know conceptual writing I don't think I don't think that it um, well until the definition expands that it contains that it really contains what I'm up to so I mean a lot of the work deals with presence absence, loss um, on the human mortal scale but then on the cultural scale too who's included in the conversation who's not, what's heard, what's unvoiced who's speaking, who's listening who's not speaking who's not listening (laughs) you know so the journalist Amanda Schaefer (laughs) invited me to join her on a research trip to Tufts University, she had just finished a piece for Slate on new forms of biomedical silk. I didn't really have a sense when I visited the lab with her that it would lead to this work. I was—it was pure interest on my part. It would, there was no motivation for doing something like this at all, and. Um, I think coming coming into a context where there are so many new, new and different forms of innovation uh, around silk was just an eye-opening experience. But to find one of those things was um, really, in my mind, directly connecting to um, biocompatibility issues of really like placing the silk inside the body. In an inscribed form that is optical, um presumably something that would visibly change to the human eye. So something you would be watching change in your body before your very eyes. That kind of dynamic relationship or that um, that that direct link between sensing and seeing. And silk as a material really got to me. And um, I didn't really have a sense of how I would go about it when I first started thinking about it. I just kept thinking I want to write something for that context. And part of wanting to write something for that context was um, stimulated by the disappointment of just seeing what what the test images were and of course there are test images there have to be for something that's optically patterned but um, I felt a little a little deflated the first time I saw um, you know just kind of random stuff being put in a context that I felt was not random at all um So it was at that point I thought, well, I'd love to think about that. I didn't really feel like Tufts needed me to think about that. I needed to think about it. And it was something that I wanted to really move through in my own time and then offer back uh, as a kind of of proof of concept in a way to say this is what it would look like if we thought about that. Um, There are many steps forward with that. I mean, you could take that a lot further if you moved into a... Um, a realm of direct collaboration, which I hope will come to pass in the future. well, I think in a lot of the earlier work I've been interested in the haptic qualities of tactile touch um, for that to go subcutaneous is a new thing <laughs> uh, that that said it's you know this is not a poem that will be implanted it's a it's an idea rather than a reality um, or a potential idea. Um, you could probably swallow it if you wanted to. I mean, you could ingest it without any problem, but it wouldn't be sensing at that point. Um, I think for me, this work takes research to a very new place. Uh, it's the first time that I've had that sort of expansive sense of, uh, both in time and, and geography, to go and create a very layered experience of research in contexts that are really unfamiliar to me. For me, it just seemed ludicrous to try to write a poem about silk from America, which is you know, has a very 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 minor role to play in the history of silk but I don't know one of the questions I struggle with always with this with silk poems and with with Sue Wei is kind of who am I to do that and and I think I should struggle with it and I think I should always test how I'm doing it why i'm doing it uh, what m- what my blind spots are. Um, so I can make certain strides in struggling with those questions but I think I still have a lot of work to do as well Um, so I mean I think the goal of the work is to really ask questions and go in search of answers um, and to include and to want more of the world reflected in the poem but I always feel like I can do that better. And I, like, I think my hope is that other people will do it better, too. You know, that I'm not the only person who's going to write a silk poem. Um, I'm not going to write another silk poem. But there, there could be a really great book on labor related to silk. And there's a, a, a lot of labor history that's not in the poem you know, around silk handlers, diseases of the skin, for example. Like, when you get into that territory, it's, for me, it brings up questions of, like, how do you be context responsible to the world? And also, how do you be context responsible to the context of the poem, which is, you know, a human context where someone is weighing in a daily way the balance of, their own mortality and so if someone's in the in that kind of a balance, what do you want to talk with them about? Um, and for me I, I felt like it was a it was a poem that I wanted to reassure to comfort to accompany to um, to in some ways speak to the profundity of that moment. And so not everything that I was interested in could be in in the poem. And there are also things that the silkworm doesn't feel inclined to talk about because it's a silkworm. <laughs> it's, um, there are aspects of silk it's interested in conveying and other aspects it's not. I didn't I didn't know until the writing started in earnest that that would be that that voice would be the voice and I certainly didn't expect it to sound like it sounds <laughs> uh, there's a certain amount of latitude that you can get out of um, trying to channel the voice of, of an animal that, an, you know, a worm that in essence has lived 5,000 years <laughs> it has some some pretty great perspective and I, you know part of that is you know wisdom but also part of that is humor i mean if you've lived and died that many times like the life cycle of, of a silkworm is 30 days roughly and you know if you've done that for 5000 years you're going to have a different perspective on human problems <laughs> than uh, a human who's lived one lifetime so once that was established, and I, I can't really say how it came about. Um, that gave me a lot of room to move. Actually, I can say it, how, how it came about. It's in the preface to the poem. It's about who gets to tell the story, and it seems like a silk poem. There is only one possible narrator, and that is the silkworm. So. And the poem has a recipient, which is the person with the sensor inside of them. who would need the book to know what their sensor says, but that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's not a problem. <laughs> I need people to need books. <laughs> so, But I would say that the first audience, in my mind, for this work is the silkworm. Uh, the second is the person with the biosensor potentially implanted under their skin. And the third audience is anyone who is in the position to consider the precarity of the balance between health and well-being and um, illness and mortality. Um, And then there are all sorts of other audiences around language and culture and... um, and art, and scientists. Hmm. (laughs) I hope a lot of scientists read the poem. Hmm. See, at this point, we're 48 pages in. It is a function of poetry to locate those zones inside us that would be free and declare them so, writes C.D. Wright. Are you surprised I quote a poet? Don't be. We invented language in divinations as early as the Shang Dynasty. In 1050 BC, you'll find oracle script characters written on tortoise shells for silk fabrics and mulberry trees. Ever wondered why the ancient oracle script from China has a writing style called bird and worm script? Ever considered why book one of the Confucian Analects is called Digested Conversations? No? Really? From a philosopher born in a cave called the Hollow Mulberry Tree? I will recite my favorite passage for you. When I have presented one corner of a subject to anyone, and he cannot learn from it the other three, I do not repeat my lesson mulberry translates us we translate it look the radical for silk is in the word translate
1: this week's episode of make no bones was produced and edited by emily and toby altman in iowa city the music for this episode is by toby altman
0: If you like what we do, check out our website, makenobonespodcast.org, for all our episodes, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And please consider rating us on iTunes, it really helps get the word out.
1: Join us next time for an interview with Simone White.